Deuteronomy chapter 27 as we continue our study through Deuteronomy together. As we come to chapters 27 and 28, uh, you'll notice a lot of people refer to this as sort of the blessings uh, and the curses, uh, these sections of scripture here. And as we come to chapter 27 now, uh, Moses is sort of uh, wrapped up now another one of his sermons. He begins a new section now, again, as we said before, the book of Deuteronomy, the theme obedience. But really, it is just a series of sermons that Moses is giving uh, to the younger generation. Again, sort of a a series of, of youth sermons to the younger generation as they will now enter into the promised land under Joshua's leadership uh, as the older generation has died off. And he's reiterated a lot of things that have already been said to the prior generation in Israel. And now it seems here as he comes to chapter, the end of chapter 26, 27, and 28, he's now beginning to call them uh, to their own commitment, to make their own covenant with God. Again, remember, their parents had stood and made a covenant with God and made their commitment to God, but the commitment of a parent uh, to God is nothing uh, in comparison to the reality of a personal commitment uh, of a child or the next generation making their own commitment to God. And it's great to have parents make their own commitment to God and children to see that, to witness that, uh, but that really has no bearing upon the fact of whether or not that child themselves is going to make a commitment to God to follow through on their own life and their own relationship with God. And uh, this is now, in a sense, sort of the next generation now. And Moses is saying, listen, your parents made their covenant, but what about you? What are you going to do? Are you going to make your own commitment to God and follow through? Because that will have a direct bearing upon their own personal lives. So chapter 27 now begins by telling us here in the first verse that Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So this notice here is now instruction. It's not reiteration of the law and the things that they've learned thus far being repeated to them to reinforce and remind them. But this is now instruction for what they were to do, what their uh, really first act uh, was to be as they crossed over into the land of the Jordan, what they were to actually do to prepare themselves to become established in the land. Notice, This is what you shall do on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Again, notice God was completely confident in what was going to happen. Yes, there were going to be enemies. Yes, there were going to be obstacles. Yes, there was going to be the Jordan River in front of them. And how were they going to possibly get across it? But again, obstacles mean nothing to God. And as God faces situations that look like obstacles to us, Really, they're just opportunities for the Lord. Uh, The Jordan River was an obstacle to them, but it was an opportunity for the Lord to part the Jordan, to take them through like he had done with the Red Sea and to do one of his miracles as they faced Jericho and the different enemies. These just became opportunities. But God's fully confident in what he's going to accomplish. And the same is true as we talked about before, that this is all a picture 
of the life in the spirit for us that the life uh, in the promised land pictures the promised life in the spirit for us and that God is able and willing to bring us through whatever obstacles may be spiritual hindrances in our lives whether it's the enemies of our flesh or whatever they may be uh, God may look at them from his perspective as what we see as obstacles but they're just opportunities for God to give us victory and to help us to overcome so uh, God sees this confident arrival and he says when you cross over but he wanted to make sure when they went in and they began to experience what God wanted that they wouldn't in a sense default on the relationship and then begin to drift back into things that would only just bring problems and great detriment into their lives so he says when you cross into the land that the Lord your God's giving you here's the instruction verse 2 you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. We might say, you know, that you would plaster them. The idea is that they were to take these large stones and and, and cover them w- with a nice white background. The reason why, for the contrast, verse 3, and then you shall write on them all the words of this law. Now, whether that is a reference to the entirety of the law, whether it's a reference to just the book of Deuteronomy or even just the Ten Commandments, a sort of a summary form, uh, we can't be certain. But nonetheless, I I like this. God's in essence saying, when you cross over, establish a memorial as a testimony and a public reminder to yourself as a nation that you are a people who are founded upon the principles and the boundaries and the instructions of my word, that you live according to my way, and this is how your nation was established, and this is how your nation will thrive. This is how your nation will do best if you do things according to my boundaries, the parameters that I set for you for life, morally and spiritually, and how they were to live relationally and civilly and so forth. So I like this here. Again, God says, do you want to be a blessed people? Do you want to be a blessed nation? Then put a public reminder up, a public testimony for yourself of how you can live the way I intended you to live so that you'll be blessed rather than bring a curse upon yourself as a nation, as a people. Now, it isn't interesting. God tells them to do this, and we're so smart today in our nation that we're making constant efforts to do what? Everywhere those Ten Commandments are up, tear them memorials down, because we know a lot better than God does. And we don't want to, by any means, you know, allow God's Word to be the standard. And, and, and you know, here we are, we're so smart, like the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, you know, uh, to professing to be wise, we become fools. And here God is giving these people, the nation of Israel, this encouragement, this instruction. He says, first act of business, when you establish yourself as a nation, he says, get large white stones, write on them the word of God when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord God your fathers has promised you. So again, it would be a productive land. It would be a place where they could prosper and the basis of them prospering, the basis of them experiencing God's best would be to have a clear reminder in front of them of the testimony and the law of the Lord in their sight so that everyone knew this is how we were established. This is the way we should order our lives. This is what we should do. These are the boundaries we should live within. These are the prohibitions that would bring problems among us as a nation and as individuals. Verse 4, he says, Therefore it shall be when you've crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal 
you shall set up these stones which I command you today and you shall whitewash them with lime. So Mount Ebal, we're going to see more about that in a moment here. This is about 25 miles or so uh, away from the area of Jerusalem. And where this area is, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, we'll see in the verses ahead, is really sort of right kind of at the central part of the land. So that God here is almost reminding them right at the center and the heart of everything that they would be doing. Uh, this was necessary as sort of a reminder that this is to be the heart of who you are as a nation. So he says, when you get there, set up these stones which I command you in verse 5 also not only were they to put up a public uh, representation of the word of God but also here's the second order of business he says and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God an altar of stones and you shall not use an iron tool on them the idea is they weren't to make fancy engravings upon them and make them ornate uh, and impressive as far as their appearance. They were just to be plain stones, a very simple altar, the ideas, as far as aesthetically. And you shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall offer peace offerings on it and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. So they were to secondly establish a place of worship. So I like this. God says, put a public representation that you are a people nationally who, who are governed by the word of God. And God says, and establish a, 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 a location of worship. And as your first act, begin to offer worship unto me and sacrifices, which was the way that the Israelites would worship God, as we've seen many times before. And notice God gives this interesting instruction here. Don't get over-concerned, he says, about what the altar looks like, making fancy or neat engravings on it and this and that. And, and why is that? Well, one of the reasons could very simply be this is because God did not want the beauty and the appearance and all the aesthetics of this nice fancy altar if they build it that way to actually become a distraction from what really mattered, which was the word of God and the worship of God himself. And God knows what human beings are like. And God didn't want people leaving that sort of you know, commemoration ceremony where the people were making their commitment to God, their, their, you know, their dedication of themselves to God as a nation. God didn't want people walking away from that time saying, man, what about that altar? I mean, just, was that place, I mean, was that a really, I mean, wow, I mean, just that was impressive. God didn't want them talking about that. He wanted them walking away, talking about the word of God and about God himself. And being impressed with God and being impressed with the word of God rather than other things that were just sort of the, uh, again, the, the peripheral things that didn't matter very much, what the altar looked like or what the atmosphere was like. And again, showing that God's concerned about the more central things and many times we can be distracted by the trappings rather than what really has the substance itself as far as the word of God and what it has to say and God himself and the worship of God. So he calls them when they say, up this altar here to then offer the typical sacrifices we've seen before the burnt offerings verse 6 and the peace offerings again remember the burnt offering was the offering of total consecration where the animal sacrifice would be put upon the altar and the entire animal would be consumed in the fire and it was a picture 
that you wanted your life completely consumed or given over to God. That was the idea there. Lord, I want you to take all of it. I want you to take everything, consume it. Uh, and Lord, I don't want any part of it. It was a picture of, of the life of the worshiper that they wanted to be fully consecrated to God. Lord, every part of me, all of my worship, everything about me, I don't want any part of it for myself. I want it all to be given over to you. And then the peace offering described in verse 7, or also called the fellowship offering, was remember that offering of, of communion or, or companionship. Again, in that offering, uh, the, the animal or the sacrifice was roasted and a portion of the meat was burnt on the altar. A portion of the meat typically was given to the priests or whoever were officiating. And then you also, together with family and sometimes friends as well, would also partake of a portion of that. And the idea is like you were having a, a communal meal, like a like a like a, a holy barbecue together with the Lord. And again, they looked upon eating and meals in that culture as as a time of, of oneness. That is we both ate of the same animal or the same piece of meat, the same food that was nourishing you from the same animal is also nourishing me. And so therefore somehow mystically we're becoming one because what's going into me and giving me life and nourishment, you're partaking of the same thing. So that's why the, the Jews particularly looked upon eating as a very intimate thing. So this was a way of just having fellowship with God. And, and Lord, we just want to have companionship with you and fellowship with you. And this is what the peace offering was. It was a way of just, again, sort of spending time in holy fellowship with God as they would eat there. And notice also, it wasn't just to be something they did sort of routinely. He says, and rejoice before the Lord your God. So their worship was to be something that was enjoyable. To rejoice means to celebrate. And, and I think it should be a, a, an enjoyable thing when we worship the Lord. Uh, we should truly be worshiping the Lord, not just out of duty, but because we also find great pleasure in it, that we rejoice and find fulfillment and enjoyment in such. He goes on to then say, verse 8, and you shall write very plainly, another reiteration of what we just saw, you shall write, he says here, very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. So no sloppy penmanship. You know, I guess they, they figured out you know, who was the right person to, to make sure they wrote. God said, if you're going to write my word, make it clear, make it legible so that people can read it. And, and again, I like this, how God wants his word to be very plain. He wants it to be clear. It doesn't necessarily, have, doesn't, God doesn't say, look, find the person with the best cursive, you know, real fancy, you know, in their letters. No, just find somebody who writes very clear and very, clean, very plain. So that the expression of his word was very understandable. It was clear. It was plain. It may not necessarily have been fancy, but it was something that was easily read and easily understood. And I think God wants his word to be like that. I think God wants his word to just be plain to be clear, to be evident so that people can just understand it and, and be able to benefit from what it says. And, and I like this, you know, that the word of God was being written out on these stones. As people would see it, it would be a reminder to them of God's promises, a reminder of God's warnings and prohibitions, a reminder of God's instructions and how life was to be lived and how they were to conduct themselves. And I'll tell you, I think this is a really great idea. I think verse eight there is a good injunction for all of us, not just that we would have God's word displayed publicly again in our state capitals and so on and so forth on monuments. I think that's a great idea. But you know what? I don't care if they tear the Ten Commandments down or tear down God's word in courthouses and, and capitol buildings. They can't do it in my house. 
And as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And, and, and I have a wife who loves to write God's word in our house, who loves to post God's word in our house in, in, in evident, clear ways. And, and I like that. I like that. You know, a picture or two of who's important to us, that's enough for me. You know, <laughs> I don't need more pictures. I don't need artwork of other things, but put the Word of God on little boards written here and pictures there. I thought, that's something worthy to stare at. And there are times in my life I know that it's just that simple glance, you know, that seeing a, a scripture verse, a reminder, a promise, that sometimes is that's that word in season that I, I need to hear some mornings or I need to hear some evenings as I come home at the end of a day or as I sit there and eating dinner and look up and reflect and, or if I'm having my devotions and glance up and see a particular verse here. That I think it's just a really wise thing. You know, if you're going to you know, utilize God's word, maybe God gives you a certain verse of, you know, write God's word. Put it up. Put it on note cards. My, you know, daughters do. They put the right verse on a note card. They stick it on their bathroom mirror. One of the girls' bathroom mirrors is, you know, charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. I think that's a good thing to put on your makeup mirror. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good reminder there. A great verse to stick on your mirror for, you know, a young girl who, you know, appearance and peer pressures and all that kind of stuff. Just great reminders. You know, and there's something about writing God's word too. Isn't it? When you write things down, it really cements it in your brain. It really cements it in, in your life in a deeper way. So again, I would challenge you as well. Maybe your personal devotional time. One of the reasons why I try and as much as possible stick to the habit of, of recording things when I have my personal devotions. I may read a section of verses, and a lot of times I like to just maybe at least write down maybe one verse that really is the prominent verse to me in that reading, and, and just to write it down, because there's something about reading and writing that, that just causes a greater connection there, and there's just something really valuable about doing that, just you know, writing down the Word of God and letting it come through in that way, and this is beautiful here, how they were to write plainly the, wa the words of God put it on these stones and it was public for all the citizens, the people of the nation of Israel, to see it as they would pass by that area, to remember who they were and why they lived differently as a nation and why they were God's people and would be blessed if they observed it. Well, verse 9, it says, Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. So again, because of who they were and their identity, they were the people of God. Therefore, it should make perfect sense. Verse 10, therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God. Again, if you claim to be the people of God, then you should also be someone who cooperates with what God has to say, obeying his voice. So he says, therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God. And observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And Moses commanded the people on the same day saying, and this again was the ceremony they were supposed to do that's going to be described here now, verse uh, 12 uh, and down, uh, when they got into the land. And again, if you're uh, someone who's a note taker, or you don't have a reference, Joshua 8 is where this actually ends up happening. Once they get into the land, they deal with Jericho and so on and so forth. This ceremony is actually carried out in Joshua chapter 8. We'll see it when we get there. But here's God's instruction, what they were to do. These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan. 
Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, those six tribes were to be up on Mount Gerizim, and Mount Gerizim would be a mountain range to the south, uh, and then Mount uh, Ebal would be a mountain range to the north of that, and a valley will be right between them. So the idea here is, is there's the valley right between, and this area where this is all taking place and going on is around the area of, of, of Shechem, the valley area there, which is very interesting because this was the area where these things were to take place, where their patriarch Abraham, when he first came to the area, built an altar and began to receive promises from God. So this was a very prominent and, and uh, sentimental, I guess you want to say, area that it had great meaning where God is calling the people now as a nation where their original founding father of the nation, Abraham, this one man who God by his sovereign grace called to be the father of a great nation through which he would establish his chosen people Israel and through which the Messiah Jesus Christ would come from. It was in this same area here between these two mountain ranges, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, in that valley in between where Abraham heard from God and now they were to sort of have this ceremony to establish these things. So six tribes were to be on the, the, the again, the, the southern mount of Gerizim to bless the people, to call out blessings and endorse the blessings. And verse 13 says, another six tribes were to be on uh, Mount Ebal to pronounce the curses or to give agreement when the curses were read. Reuben, Gad, Asher, <coughs> Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So you have in the center here in the valley, Moses, probably perhaps some of the priestly family and some of the Levites, not from the tribe of Levi, in the center. And you kind of have a natural amphitheater here. You have hundreds of thousands of people on Mount Ebal. You have hundreds of thousands of people on Mount Gerizim. And now you have down in the center, in the valley, like an amphitheater, Moses and some of the other elders and religious leaders who are calling forth these uh, statements and the people then endorsing with their agreement uh, up on the different mountain ranges or somewhat, I guess you say, hills or not mountain ranges like we would picture mountain ranges. But this is what happens, verse 4. The Levite shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, and now we read 12 curses, which are given, 12 things that would bring a curse or, or the removal of God's favor is another way to say that, upon them as a nation. These were things that if they did and they violated God's boundaries, uh, they would naturally bring a curse or the loss of God's favor upon their nation. So I think worthwhile things for us to pay attention to. We're a nation. We're not the nation of Israel. Uh, but these were things uh, that God spoke to his people as the nation went in and established themselves. The Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, here's the first of the 12 given, verse 15, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. Now you'll notice, as God goes through these here, a number of these are direct violations to what we know as the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, here's a violation of commandment one and two. You know that you shall know of no other God before me. You shall make no graven image and so forth. So God begins and says, cursed is the one who begins to make a carved or molded image. It's an abomination. And again, this is basically God speaking here in regards to them giving allegiance or giving devotion to something or to someone else instead of God or before God. Either one of them would, would be wrong. Either one of them is detestable and dishonorable to the Lord because he deserved first place in their life. He established their nation. He created their nation. He was the one who gave the inception to their nation. And so God says, therefore, I should be the God of your nation. I should be the one that receives allegiance instead of other things. And notice, giving this worship or allegiance or devotion to something or someone else, he mentions here in verse 15, it is something that was done by setting it up in secret. So again, the idea is being, you know, beginning to secretly have this allegiance or devotion somewhere else, hiding what's being done, doing it in secret. And whenever something is being done in secret, typically it's never a good thing because God does everything in the light. And typically we find in the Bible, whenever things are being done secretively, the Bible tells us in Ephesians, you know, that, that it's shameful even to speak of what the disobedient do in secret. And here God speaks of this secret altar, if you would, that was separate from giving worship and allegiance to the Lord. And sadly, uh, these become the things that incrementally bring deterioration to a nation where people have these little secret sins and things that they're giving their attention to, the little altars they build in their life, whether it's the altar of pornography or it's the altar of some habit or, or vice or thing that's going on where publicly they present one image, but privately they have this other thing that they're giving allegiance to before God in their life. And this becomes the deterioration of a life which then becomes the pollution of a family, which then becomes the defilement of a society. And it begins to gradually erode a culture. And God says this is something that will bring a curse upon the nation. Now, as these things are read, notice these different curses, verse 15. And then all the people answer. Imagine hundreds of thousands of people as they hear this. It's read out. Cursed is the one who makes a carved image and an abomination to the work to the Lord, to the work of the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And then all the people answer and say, try it. Amen. All right, boy, it's, gee, good thing you weren't there. What, is, what does amen mean? So be it. It means let it be so. So what the people are saying as they're saying amen to these curses being read forth, what the people are saying is not only is that true, but we accept the consequences that would come along with that disobedience. They're not just saying, yes, it is a wrong and cursed thing to do this, but they're also saying, so be it. We accept the responsibility as a people that if we do these things, we bring a curse upon ourselves. So be it. Let it be so. Let us be cursed. So there's the acceptance of the responsibility for the wrong behavior. Verse 16, he says, Cursed next is the one who treats his father or mother with contempt. The idea here is dishonoring and disrespecting the parental role. Again, whether this is children who do not show any regard or respect for the authority of their parents as the authority figure that God's put in their life or a proper healthy 
family structure and the proper upbringing of a child because it's as a child learns to respect authority in their home they then respect authority in society which becomes a healthy thing then for a nation but if children don't learn that at home because parents refuse to teach it or to enforce it out of cowardice or wanting to play buddy or friend with their kids and they allow their children to in a sense dishonor or disrespect their authority or, or whether children are just rebellious God says either way that contributes to the deterioration and the erosion of a culture so I think this could refer to a dishonoring and disrespecting certainly of a small child but as well as he says they're cursed as the one who treats his father or mother with contempt the idea of contempt is to look down upon something I think this can happen as well in a in a nation in a culture where as, as parents age and become elderly that there's this contempt for one's parents that one looks upon their aging or elderly parent in a contemptuous way as if somehow it's an inconvenience. They're a burden. And listen, we are a culture that certainly is beginning to devalue and in a sense disesteem the elderly. We look upon the elderly as if they're an inconvenience, they're a bother, uh, rather than looking at it as that it's an honorable thing to show, in a sense, respect towards them, to render back appreciation as they age, and especially doing that most directly towards one's parents. So cursed, he says, is the one who treats his father and mother with contempt, and all the people say, Amen. And cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. We talked about that before, where you'd sneak out at night <laughs> while your neighbor's sleeping and edge it over a few paces. The idea there is just to be dishonest, take advantage of people, and steal in sneaky ways through deception. And God says when people become selfish and they start to steal from one another, they don't regard each other's rights or property, and they're looking to just steal away from one another all the time. God says that will begin to bring a curse upon a nation. Verse 18, he says, Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. Now, isn't it kind of sad, God? <laughs> I, I chuckle at these things because it just astonishes me sometimes that God actually has to say these things, but it goes to show you again how well he knows humanity. That God says, Cursed, again, is the one, and cursed will become the nation who allows people to make blind people wander off the road. Again, because the blind person cannot see where they're going and they cannot see who's doing this to them. So uh, the picture here is uh, misleading those who are vulnerable. And God says when you mislead someone who's vulnerable and you endanger them, thereby you're misleading of them, God says that's a cursed thing. And you're going to bring a curse upon yourself. You're going to lose the favor of God. And again, it may not be in a sense in just a direct literal way, but there are lots of different ways that people mislead blind and naive and vulnerable people. And they lead them off the road. People do that spiritually. I believe this is what false prophets and false teachers do. They mislead people off the road of salvation and take advantage of their blind condition because they can't see clearly. And God says that individual is not only a cursed individual but they will as a people bring such a curse upon themselves so all the people say amen verse 19 cursed is the one who perverts the justice do the stranger the fatherless and the widow and all the people say amen so here this speaks of uh, again mistreating the weak or the less fortunate the orphan uh, the widow the, uh, the the we might say today the single mother 
and again, perverting justice, the idea here is exploiting the situations of those who are vulnerable for their own selfish gain. And sadly, we live in a culture where many times that's done. Rather than help those who are vulnerable, people are exploited when they're vulnerable. You know, you, you, you have the, you know, the single mom or the widow and they take their car to the body shop. And the mechanic says, ha, 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 there's extra money. And God says, that's horrible. That's horrible. When someone would exploit somebody's vulnerability or the situation that they're in. And God says, when a people begin to behave that way, they're a nation who's beginning to bring a curse upon themselves and that greedy and selfish attitude. And all the people said, verse 19, amen. And cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife. And we can all say, yuck, because he has uncovered his father's bed. Verse 21, we'll look at a few of these because they all tie together. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal, bestiality, double yuck. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, so incest, the daughter of his father, the daughter of his mother. Verse 23, and cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law, absolute insanity, <laughs> triple yuck. And, and in all those things, God says, as these things are spoken, all the people, as they hear each one of these, the people say, so be it. Amen. Let it be so. Here, God is saying another thing that will bring a curse upon a nation. What's described here in these four verses, 20 through 23, is what? Very simply, you can categorize distorting and defiling proper sexual expression. Proper sexual expression, which was given from the creation of man for a male and a female in a monogamous, lifelong marital relationship. It says Adam and his wife were naked and they were unashamed. Those two become one flesh. The idea is it does not say Adam and Steve were naked and unashamed because that's shameful from God's perspective. Homosexuality. It does not say Adam and his son. It does not say that, you know, Adam and, and one of the deers. Beast. These are all things that are distortions and perversions of God's gift of sexual expression the way he intended. And God says one of the main contributing factors that will bring a curse upon a nation is when a people begin to distort and defire proper sexual expression. Again, whether it's incest, whether it's bestiality, whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's homosexuality, they're all distortions. And when you begin to distort and pervert and defile proper sexual expression according to the boundaries God gave it, you just begin to prepare a moral landslide. Because where does it stop? And look, folks, look at our culture. Yeah, we're moving along this way, and who can use what bathrooms now? And now we have a president who seeks to take upon himself like he's a king and make this edict like he's, you know, has a federal power higher than a king that now every public school must comply with this. So if your son wants to go in the girl's bathroom or girl's locker room, every school publicly should now cooperate with that. If your daughter decides she wants to peruse around in the boys' locker room and, and to, if, if that's what she feels like doing, and, and we have a president of our country who's saying that all the, you know, the, the, the public schools in the nation, I mean, where does it stop? 
And when you begin to, and again, these are just the incremental steps as we legislate, you know, and, and we give endorsement to different types of sexual expression and we distort the design of what God has originally given, look, we're, we're seeing already, we're watching how just everything now is just becoming acceptable. When does it stop? What becomes unacceptable? How can anything be unacceptable? Because if it's okay for them to do what they want, then when do you begin to then down the road have a proper dispute when somebody as a father says, you know what, I'm not interested in my wife anymore. I think I want to marry and have sex with my 10-year-old daughter. And we're, oh, that's gross. And you know what's going to happen? I'm telling you what's going to happen. Listen, for years and years, you said this type of relationship was wrong and those people had to be in a closet and that was shameful. But eventually everybody came around. And you now say that's normal. People are born that way. And now every, and they, we need to be tolerant and give them their rights. And the dispute is going to be, how can you give them their rights after years of telling them it was wrong and you've now flipped and changed and said it's acceptable? How can you tell me just because my thing seems different that what I desire is not right? Why can't I marry this 10-year-old? Why can't I have six wives? What? Not that I want six wives, honey. I want to get stoned after the service. It was a theoretical illustration. I've got to protect myself on these things. <laughs> Why can't I marry my animal? And see, it just becomes a landslide. And God says, this will bring a curse upon a nation. And boy, I'll tell you, sad, sad, sad to consider as these things are being spoken to Israel. What a cr- tremendous parallel so many of these things are to our nation and where we have gravitated from. And in a sense, we need more people who when people say cursed is that kind of behavior that say, amen, amen, that's, that's, that's not healthy. It's destructive to a nation and to a people. Verse 24, cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. Your translation may say strikes his neighbor secretly. The idea there is, is somebody who harms someone, notice, and secretly again in private. So again, I think we might think of that. How does someone strike or attack someone privately? Abuse. And it happens privately and God says, well, I don't care if the abuse is happening privately. God says, I see what's going on. And God says, it's a cursed thing. And it's a thing that if it's taking place and it's not being addressed, God says, it will bring a plague and it will bring a scourge upon a nation. Again, abuse in different forms, attacking, hurting people in secret you know, and, and harming people unnecessarily. And all the people say, man, verse 25, and cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. So probably nothing worse than harming someone in secret than getting paid to harm somebody in secret, like a hitman. Actually, some personal advantage, some financial profit. The idea here is destroying the life of another for personal profit personal gain or personal advantage in some form. And God says, having the idea here is having no regard for life. Verse 24 and 25 speak of a disregard for life. And a disregard for life to the extent that if somehow I can be benefited by dis- disregarding and removing this life, th- then I'm going to do that. And God says that when a nation and a people begins to have a disregard for life, That's a nation and a people who's going to bring the curse 
of God upon themselves. So as the people hear this, all the people, again, verse 25, say amen. And finally, verse 26, the twelfth of these curses pronounced there. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law, and all the people shall say Amen. So uh, there, verse 26, it's almost as if a a catch-all there, disregarding God's word. He says all the words of this law, disregarding the boundaries of God's word, disregarding the prohibitions and the instructions and the warnings, God says this will bring up curse upon a people uh, as a nation. And the people agree, Lord, so be it, let it be so. Chapter 28 says, Now it shall come to pass... If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So here God gives them a conditional promise if he says, verse 20, uh, verse one, if you as a people obey the voice of the Lord, if you observe his commandments, follow the word of God. What's God's promise to that nation? He says, I'll set you high above all the other nations of the earth. God's saying, I'll exalt your nation. I'll elevate and exalt your nation. I will prosper you above other nations if you become a people who obey my voice and obey the written precepts and truths of my word. Verse 2, now he begins to speak and saying above, excuse me, and all these blessings shall come upon you. And I like this, overtake you. I like blessings upon me, but I like it even better when blessings overtake me. The idea is you can't get away from God's blessings. God's saying, even if you, I'll bless you so much that if you try and run from it, I'll bless you even more. And again, God's saying, do you want to have a blessed nation? As a people, do you want to be blessed? God says, my blessing is found within obedience to my word. That if you live according to the standards and truths of my word, you conduct your affairs that way civilly, again, relationally in your families, in your society, you honor these boundaries and truths. God says all these blessings will come upon you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. He then begins to describe them. Verse three, blessed shall you be in the city. And blessed shall you be in the country. The idea is that location would not limit the blessing of God in their lives. That that no matter where they were at, wherever they were, if they lived in the rural areas or the urban areas, in the country or in the city, God would bless them without any restrictions or limitations. That wherever they were, God would bring his blessing upon them as a people. He says, verse 4, blessed shall you be in the fruit of your body. The idea is their children would be blessed. And I like that, that as the parents obey the word of God, blessing comes upon their family, upon the fruit of their womb. Their children will be blessed as the result of the lives the parents live. The produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. So that speaks of God's blessing upon, if you would, their economy. Their vocation, their work, these were the things. The, they were agrarian people. They either farmed the ground or they raised cattle and herds and animals and so forth. And God's saying here, in your jobs, in your work, in your economy, God said, you'll be blessed. Your economy will flourish as you obey the word of God. Verse 5, he says, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Again, the blessing of God on their provisions. Blessed shall you be when you come in 
and blessed you shall be when you go out. So the nation would experience God's blessing in the sense of that whatever they did in their travel, in their endeavors, the things they put themselves into, whether they're going out or coming in, the blessing of God would be upon their investments and their endeavors. Verse 7, he promises the Lord your God will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So again, notice, take note here for Israel. God speaks to them as a nation and he says, if you obey my word, he says, you also will not only be blessed economically, blessed agriculturally, God says militarily. God says, you will be strong. He says, you will be strong militarily. You will have success against your enemies. You'll be strong. You will defeat them in battle. You will overcome. You will be a strong military power. Again, what's God reminding them? That the success of their military uh, activity was not dependent upon the strength of their army or the skill of their warriors or their military budget. It was dependent upon their relationship with God. And if they were in right relationship with God, God would give them success and victory. And God's going to say in a few verses after this, if you disobey my word and you're not in right relationship with me, God is going to say to them there, listen, then you're going to flee before your enemies. You're going to be vulnerable and you're going to be defeated and your enemies are going to overcome you militarily no matter what your military budget and strategies are. Verse 8, he says, the Lord will command the blessing on you and your storehouses and all which you set your hand, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So again, notice not only would they have enough, but their storehouses would be blessed as well. Their storehouses spoke of what? Excess, abundance. So God says you won't only have enough, but God said you'll actually bless you with excess. You'll have abundance as the result of living the way that you should. Again, as we live the way God intends, God blesses that. God delights to bless and, and God wants us to keep ourselves, whether it's individually or whether it's nationally, if you would, this probably isn't even a word, but in a blessable condition. God says, live in a way whereby I can bless you. I want to bless you. Do, you. do you take note here? God wants to bless Israel. That's the point. He's saying, I want to bless your nation. And if you live in this way, he says, I will respond by putting my blessings upon you in all these different ways, he says. I'll bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you, verse 9, as a holy people to himself, just as he sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. So another blessing that God would give to them is that they would be a strong testimony. They would be an example to other nations, that nations would look at them as they were experiencing this incredible blessing economically, in their health, in their economy, in their military, and people would recognize the reason they're blessed is because they are a nation that lives under the authority of God. And because they worship God and honor God and obey God's boundaries and designs and principles, that's why they're a blessed nation. That's why they're a strong nation. And here God says it will be a testimony to the other nations that see that distinction. Verse 11, And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods 
in the fruit of your body, the increase of your livestock and the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord God swore to your fathers to give you. And the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season. And look at it again and bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend. Look at this. You shall lend, he told Israel, to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Again, they would be the ones that were so healthy economically that they would be the ones able to lend to others. And he says they wouldn't need to have to borrow from any other nations because they would be healthy and sustained by God's blessing upon them nationally. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. Now, any animal I've looked at, I'd much rather be the head and not the tail. The idea there of the head and not the tail, the head is the, you know, the front. The idea is, is God says, you will be one who leads rather than one who follows. The tail is the back end. So God says, you will be a nation that provides leadership rather than being the one who's following the other nations. This is what God's intention was for them, to bless them. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. Again, notice the condition. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them, and so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. So, Again, we look at God's heart towards Israel as a nation and it's evident, as I said, God desired to bless them. God gave them the paradigm. God gave them a pattern. He said, listen, it's my heart to bless you. God's not, not saying, look, you have to earn my blessing. God's just saying, if you live the way I give you a design to live, if you obey my word and you honor me in your nation, God says, I'll be able to bless you. I want to bless you. And I think, again, the heart of God is an impartial heart. I think any people, to some extent, yes, we're not Israel. I understand that. I understand there's a covenant between God and the nation of Israel as his chosen people. But I also understand that we serve a God who has not changed. And God says, listen, I want to bless people, whether it's nations, whether it's families, or whether it's individuals. And God says, I want to bless you. Live in a way to whereby you stay in my blessing, where I'm able to bless you. And he says, don't turn aside and depart from my blessing. You know, there's that, you know, keep yourself under the spout where the blessing flows out. And you know where the blessing flows out? living a life that respects the word of God. It will be a blessed life. It will be a life that's not barren and bitter and miserable, but a life that is blessed. And Father, we thank you for...